I think one of the one of the most like ch- challenging and like sometimes frustrating parts of like essay writing is like when you learn how to write an essay, you basically just learn how to write that essay. <laughs> Stephen L. Moore, author of The Longer We Were There, a memoir of a part-time soldier, University of Georgia Press, is here to talk about things. But first, a word from our flagship sponsor, okay? Discover your story, man, with Baypath University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing. Recent graduate Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being, quote, Filled with positive reinforcement and commitment, they have a true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions, big and small. And it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere. End quote. Don't just take her word for it, man. Apply now at paypath.edu slash mfa. Classes begin January 21st, first, first. Well, it was Nelson Mandela who once said, the greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we riff. Oh boy, I found a list of 100 famous quotes, and you're in for a 100 of those riff jokes. You've been warned. So this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, my podcast, CNF, the greatest podcast in the world. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. This is the show where I talk to badass writers, radio producers, documentary filmmakers about the art and craft of telling true stories. Here we are. How are you? How's it going? I was thinking today I was looking over at my bookshelf and it something made me think of something that took place like eight years ago or so. It made me think of how our 30s are a time of when things are supposed to be starting to happen. And I'm getting to the end of my 30s and nothing has happened. Feels that way. I mean... It feels that way. Stalemate. It's kind of a stalemate feeling, and it's frustrating and demoralizing. You're up against that wall of, am I delusional to keep going, or am I just a late bloomer? Peers, and certainly idols, they were moving the chains, man, in their 30s. At least it felt that way. I remember my early 30s. This this new book came out called The Next Wave. It's on my shelf right here. It's a collection of a new generation of literary journalists. It's edited by Walt Harrington and Mike Sager. Mike Sager's been on the show, I believe, episode 95. To this day, have no business being part of such a great anthology. But I remember at the time being so like angry with myself and the world that I wasn't doing the type of work that I wanted to do. Certainly, I wasn't doing the kind of work important enough to get noticed that time eight or seven or eight years ago whenever it was and I was getting bitter I because I didn't even know how this next wave even got the opportunities to ride that wave I was on the beach man and didn't even know the wave was coming and then it was gone I remember at that time and feeling like that that feeling further imprinted over the next few years of being on this escalator and so but it was going down right and so, and I was walking up. And with every step, I was staying in place. Or if I really sprinted, I might make it up two steps, but I'd slide back down, get tired, burned out, bitter, resentful. Meanwhile, peers, people I admired around the same age, a little bit older, some, sometimes younger, were on the up escalator. And not only that, but climbing up. So that, that's how it felt. It felt like everyone was just creating this distance. And it was about this time that I decided to start this podcast, of course, to work through a lot of those charbroiled bitterness feelings. But now I'm almost 40, and I feel like I wasted my 30s. This this time when we're supposed to start moving, when your career is trending in a direction that makes your 40s all the more exciting. Ever feel like you lost a decade of your life? That's what it feels like. 
can't get it back. So what are you going to do about it? Today's show is also brought to you by Sunk Costs, a cost you can no longer recover. Sunk Costs. Go on. Waste a decade. Anyway, Stephen Moore is here, and we met about a year ago. I was standing in line, an overflow crowd, to see my best friend, Elizabeth Rust. She's not really my best friend, but I like saying that. My real best friend is Bronwyn Dickey. She's not really my best friend either, but I, I like making things weird. I was in line to see Elizabeth, and I happened to be talking to her friend, and then this guy turns around because he recognized my voice and that I was from this Soggy Dog podcast that you listen to, and his name was Stephen Moore. Fast forward a year, and his memoir, The Longer We Were There, a memoir of a part-time soldier published by University of Georgia Press, came out and won the AWP Award for Creative Nonfiction. It's an amazing book and one of my favorite memoirs of the year, right up there with The Honey Bus and The Recovering. In any case, Stephen is here to talk about his book and his writing and what it means when an essay is about to break. Oh yes, and this episode is also sponsored by this riff. I was always like, I mean, I was always a reader. I was always interested in in books. And I, I came, like, I've only understood this really recently, but I came from a position where I I was I was around, like, I was in, like, a, a school where we had, like, a, a weird amount of, like, creative writing opportunities. Like, we had, like, a dedicated creative writing class. There was a literary magazine in my high school, even though it was a pretty small high school. Like, there were, there was advanced creative writing. There was, like, other like classes on literature and prose, like where it was contemporary reading. I had like kind of this space where I was like really encouraged to pursue it, which I've come to understand is like pretty special and pretty rare. And then like from there, I mean, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to keep studying. And that was the thing that I was really passionate about was um, books and reading and writing and being able to like communicate and express that way. And, um, just by chance, you know, I grew up half an hour from Iowa City. So like my National Guard, you know, was there anyway. Um, I wanted to study writing. It was really, I mean, it was a really straightforward decision. Like I, I, uh, I went on a campus visit to the University of Northern Iowa just to like do one other school. And I talked to this academic advisor and she's like, what do you want to do? And I told her, like, I want to study writing and books. And she's like, yeah, you should not go here. You should totally go to the University of Iowa. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, that's probably right. And so I went there and I started studying um, mostly like fiction. And um, I did like a year of poetry uh, during undergrad. And then um, from there, I got into nonfiction, like my last year uh, at Iowa. Yeah, during around this, you know, the same time, like, the other part of my life was the National Guard, where I, would, I enlisted when I was when I was seventeen. Um, I started going to drill during the senior year of high school. Um, I would go to do training in the summer, and it was kind of like this alternating piece, um, which became like increasingly and increasingly strange, um, especially when I got to Iowa City, where you know being on campus was a certain kind of like culture, a certain kind of community. And then on the weekends, I would be a training and it was just the absolute flip side. It was the absolute opposite. And pinging between those two identities was something that I, I kind of started to want to use my interest in writing to kind of think through and uh, talk about. And so what was the uh, your, your thought process in terms of um, enlisting in the in the National Guard and, uh, you know, kind of take us to that moment of why you wanted to, uh, you know, pursue that as part of your sort of adult career options. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like, um, it seems really I mean, it seems really juvenile in retrospect. Like it, I was really it was really about like belonging, I think, to me, like I really was like attracted to this idea where you just like show up and people would tell you what to do and you would do it and the people next to you would get told what to do and they would do it and then it would just kind of add up to this larger this larger accomplishment and this larger important thing that you were all doing as a group it seems so ridiculous because that's how all jobs work but it it was like kind of couched in this really savvy rhetoric of like service and selflessness and like giving of yourself and that felt very 
uh, that felt really attractive to me. And, um, I really liked that I could still be, um, like a student within that, uh, culture that I didn't have to completely, completely stop the rest of my life. That I could kind of do it um, on the side, which I, like, for me just made it a little bit more strange. Um, but like, that's kind of where I was coming from. You know, did you find that it was like really hard to have a, a, a boot in each, each world sits such disparate, uh, territory, so to speak? Yeah, I did. I found it really, um, I found it really difficult because like college is that time when you're really figuring out like your identity and you're kind of playing with things and you're trying to figure out like who you want to be. And I would kind of show up to actually like in literature classes or just being around other writer type folks at, uh, on campus. And the, the context there, the rules there seemed like to be of one kind of space. And then I would be in this different, um, much more, you know, much more conservative culture, um, with the guard and on the weekends. And because they were so different, I had a really hard time, like figuring out what was important to me. Like I would just be seeing these totally different communities, these totally different cultures. And it just made it very difficult for me to kind of figure out what I valued and what I prioritized because I was looking at these totally disparate versions of how you could see the same events. And instead of like making it very clear, like, well, one of these people is right and one of them is wrong. Um, I just, I just didn't know what to make of it. And I had a really hard time sorting through it. I had a really difficult time deciding what I felt, um, and like who I was going to be and who, what I was going to take from each one of these experiences and what I was going to, um, go forward with. Mm. Yeah. That it strikes me as something that, that it's got to be very kind of conf not well confusing in a way. Cause you want, like, if you're in one territory, you almost feel like, you know, if you're, you know, with your guard unit, your, your mind is probably like, I kind of wish I was writing or reading. And then if in the other way, you like feel the burden of the other thing. So it must have been hard to just feel settled in one or the other. Yeah, yeah. And like there would be these weird moments where they would kind of like clash, like they would immediately like confront each other. And like this isn't in the book, but there's I remember this like moment where um, I was on deployment. I think it was in must have been in Logman province. And I had like some downtime and I was reading John Degata's About a Mountain. And my lieutenant like walked by my bunk and he's just like, what the fuck are you reading? And I, I told him what it was about. And I was like, well, it's about, you know, like how we store nuclear waste and like the kind of the theoretical uh, implications of this really specific thing. And he's like, so who wrote it? And I was like, it's this, it's this nonfiction writer. He's like, how, like, how does he have the authority? Like what makes him such an expert? Just like, well, he, I mean, he's a smart guy. He did his research. I don't know. Like he wrote a book. Like I had no idea how to explain, uh, like the rules of this like book of creative nonfiction to my Lieutenant. And I was just like, he's a smart guy. He's a, he's a writer and he did it. And he's just like, well, I'm a smart guy. And he walked off <laughs> and it's like, oh uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, but like, it was just like weird clash where I was completely incapable of describing like what I valued about this book to somebody like who is from just like a different, like a different kind of culture. But those kinds of things happen um, where they would kind of conflict and those moments just kind of stuck with me. And I was just kind of curious on like about how to, how to work through them. When you took the nonfiction class and you you kind of allude to it in the, in, in your memoir too, that it was kind of like uh uh, almost like a, a thinning of the fiction herd, you know, the, yeah. the kind of yeah. usher you into that direction. And um, what was that experience like when you, um, having probably read a lot of fiction and, and poetry and like, and then seeing that a lot of those tools can be applied to the nonfiction backdrop? Well, what was that like for you? Yeah. So I, what was happening at, at Iowa at that time is they were um, creating a, um, a creative writing track. So like within the English major, you could kind of focus on creative writing and you had to pick a genre to apply in. Everybody wanted to be in fiction. So they kind of had to take people from fiction and be like, um, yeah, sure. Uh, maybe you should try nonfiction. And I was one of those people and I was sort of grumpy about it, um, and reluctant to do it. But I had two instructors who were just like, 
the best ambassadors you could imagine for uh, nonfiction writing. And, you know, this, this syllabi were just really full of exciting essayists. I mean, it was Didion and Baldwin and like Eula Biss and Andrew Monson, um, Abigail Thomas. And part of what was so interesting is like some of it was identifiable tools from fiction and identifiable tools from poetry. But some of it was just so different than what I thought nonfiction was. It was it was really exhilarating because it just felt like a completely new genre that I had never heard of before the way that they were practicing it. The you you mentioned the you know, of course Diddy and Thomas and a few of the other writers, but uh, who, yeah. who were some that really um, you know clicked with you in a, in a sense? It was like, all right, you know, if I'm really humming on all cylinders, like I want to kind of aim for for him or her. Like that's the stuff that really clicks with me. Yeah, it, it's tough because like a lot of the people that I, I was really excited about, like I don't think I don't think you could see their work in any of my work. Like I was really excited to read. Um, Andrew Monson for the first time because those essays felt so different to me than what I thought nonfiction looked like. We read um, Failure, an iteration, which I think was in a ninth letter at the time and then it was in one of his collections. But it, it's so visually different on the page and it's so driven just by like the force of his thinking and it always feels like the essay is about to break and he's just like always having to keep it together and keep it moving and you can kind of see like it's it seems almost really frail but also very nimble and uh that was a really exciting piece for me and i i was always like that's a piece that i could return to and feel uh, inspired by um, just because it's so the research of it is so interesting and just like the the um the thinking like on the page like the inquiry like on the page was exciting. When you say the essay feels like it was about to break, um, what do you, what do you mean by that? It, it seems like I think the the kinds of like pieces that I feel really excited to read and and like to write are are the pieces where they it feels like the writer is a little bit lost and they're kind of at the limit of something or they're taking some kind of risk on the page, and um, I think. Monson is one of those writers who's doing that pretty frequently, really like pushing himself to like write a version of the essay that he doesn't know about yet. Like he, it's not like he's seen it and he's just trying to like follow a vision, at least the way that it like seems to me, but that like he's actually like sincerely in the process of discovering the form and discovering the topic as it goes. It feels really alive. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really it, it's it's great because I'm I'm reading um Elisa Gabbert's um oh shoot uh, the word pretty um and I'm going to be speaking to her in a couple hours after you and there's just um there's the reading like for me reading how writers read and approach reading has been really kind of interesting to me because I I wonder how how writers can read so in depth. And I wonder how fast that process is, or if they really are like laboring over a sentence, how often it takes to reread an essay or a book to really be able to drill down on a lot of these things that are so like insightful. And um, as some, I just kind of, I can do about a book a week and I feel like I'm having to hustle to even finish a book a week. So I'm like, how are these people like drilling down on such a, getting to such great depth the way you the way you were able to just kind of unpack that uh, that essay that's about to break I'm like oh, I I love hearing that process I think it takes a long time one of the examples that comes to mind is one of the like first essays like in that first year of nonfiction when I was like just being introduced to nonfiction and it was just like absolute honeymoon period for a genre is um, we were assigned Eulabis's the pain scale and um, I remember our class kind of arriving to class like before we we're going to talk about it and everybody just loved it. Like as the way that I remember it at least is people were just really like electrified by how, how weird it was, how interesting it was, the range of the piece. And our, uh, I think our instructor was kind of frustrated because once the conversation started, nobody knew what to say. Like nobody knew how to analyze it or unpack it or interpret it. No one knew how it worked. It was just this like 
amazing document that this had created, but no one knew how to talk about it. And I think our instructor thought that like no one had read it. And we were just like kind of uh, being meek because we hadn't done the homework, but it was just like, we don't know, we didn't know what to do with it. And so it was one of those pieces that I was very um, interested to return to over and over. And I remember later, like when I was teaching um, during grad school, I taught that essay. And one of the things that I tried to ask my students was like, what can this essay like not do? Like, what are the rules? And like, what would an essay look like if this piece broke those rules? One of my students was talking about like, I mean, that the essay brings in like hurricanes and God and just like it goes in all these directions. And one of my students was talking about like the essay couldn't describe something tactile. Like this couldn't write a paragraph where she's just describing an Oldsmobile. That would break the essay because it's too tactile, mm. it's too physical, and it's too outside the self. It's too objective. The essay's kind of structure is about like being able to communicate pain, being able to communicate something that's very, very interior. And if she just started talking about an exterior thing that two people could both see, it would break the essay. And I was so glad that one of my students figured it out because I hadn't figured it out at all. It was a totally sincere question. And that was, I mean, that was like years later, whereas like one of my students like helped me see like what was so cool about that piece. And I think the pieces that I really respond to, I just accept, I'm gonna have to sit with this for a while. It's gonna take me a while to really um, understand how it works. And I just have to, I just have to feel comfortable with that. It's just gonna take a super long time. When you're, uh, a way that I can liken this too is, uh, if you're, you know, a football team and you're watching watching film, you're trying to break, right. breaking down defense. At right. some point, it's like, okay, um, you know, you're you're starting to get, you're starting to see the seams, and this is how how it works. And right. and there's another level of it too. Like the more you sort of unpack it, it can be, I imagine, a bit stifling too, because it. If you're just trying to generate some some kind of work, but then you're you've got this knowledge about how it could be like further unpacked and deeply layered, uh, that might be hard to generate in the face of uh, of um, trying to strive for some deeper meaning. Uh, do you ever find that in your own writing that sometimes that analytical, very readerly brain can get in the way of generating work? Oh yeah, I mean. I think it can get in the way of reading. Like, I think it can get in the way of, of like just experiencing the text. Like, especially if like your, your editor brain is turned on and you're like trying to line edit an essay as you're reading it, or you're trying to guess why it was edited the way it was. You're trying to guess like why the syntax is structured the way it was. Like it can get in the way of just like absorbing what the writer wanted. Cause you're, you're just like trying to break it down as it's happening and it can be, I mean, it can be really unproductive or really counterproductive. I don't have like a, I don't have a special method for turning it off, but I try to recognize when it's happening because then you're just, you're doing the writer a disservice because you're not, you're just not engaging on the, on the terms of the piece. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's difficult. I think you have to try to separate it into like experiencing the art for the first time on its own terms and then trying to be able to go back and approach it and say, okay, I'm going to put on my my other hat, and now I'm going to study it, and now I'm going to try to figure out the mechanics of it and figure out how they made it. I think it, I do think it tr it's it's important to try to separate them, but it's really difficult to do, at least in my like in my experience. That that's such a that's that like the great the great challenge to be able to like split <laughs> cleave those two in in half, you know, the editor yeah. brain and the writer brain, because you need to be unbridled yeah. on the one so you can be a bit more strict in the other. Yeah. Uh, to that to that point, like when you were um, you know writing uh, when you're writing essays and certainly stuff that you end up linking together for you know the longer we were here, your memoir. Um, how did you? check in with yourself to set up a good sort of writing discipline that you could uh, approach the work and get something on the page that you could later edit and rewrite? Well, I mean, I wrote a lot of it during the MFA program at Oregon State. And like the sheer velocity of that program, like required just a ton of production and a ton of generative work. And I think that's kind of my habit anyway. I generate way more work and way more writing than is actually 
useful for the piece itself. The MFA program, like just the the speed of it and the amount of work that was coming out at that time, like I, I mean, I just I had to do it. Um, and the process that was actually like probably the most significant was figuring out what was being successful, like what was successful on the page and what wasn't and figuring out like which pieces were breaking and like why and like not necessarily like adding a band-aid to that essay, but like if it's breaking for this reason, what does that tell us about what the essay actually wants or what it can actually be? And then, I mean, how do you start over? Like, based on what you've learned about the essay at that breaking point, do you need to just rewrite it from a different perspective? Do you need to um, bring in completely different scenes? Like, if being able to, like, take seriously what you've learned about the piece and then do, like, a sincere, literal revision of the work. Um, and I, I think, like, the pressure of trying to do that really, really quickly um, I mean, it was really helpful because it's, it's, it's really difficult work. I think if I had my own like schedule and my own pace, it would have taken three or four times longer. I would have just like, I would have just sat with things. I would have wrestled with stuff, but there was, there was just a deadline. There was pressure. You have to bring something in to a workshop and you have to be hopefully satisfied with it. You have to be ready to stand behind what you've done. So you just, you gotta, you gotta show up and you gotta be quick about it. I think in a way that that helped a great deal. Is that something you've been able to, uh, let's see, are you still in the program or have you since graduated? I graduated in uh, 2016. Okay. I didn't realize it was that long ago. So you're in, uh, so you're teaching at OSU? Uh, No, I I work at a a nonprofit. Like I have an office gig at a local um, foundation. Okay. So I do like my writing work in the morning and then I, you know, I have like a nine to five. Okay, that's great. I I love hear I love hearing that like sort of uh you know day jobbiness of people's lives who also want to like accomplish you know the their art and do their art and have their day job kind of like subsidize that in a, in a in a way uh, that's that's wonderful. So what uh given given that the given that you've got your sort of nine to five. Uh, how do you, what's the routine by which you um, set up your days so you can make sure that you, you know, get some of that done? Cause it's very important to you. Yeah. I just, I just wake up early. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try to, I try to get at least like two hours of work done before I have to go to the office and it has to be, for me, it has to be first because that's when I have the most energy. Um, if I try to do it after work and I'm just, I've already been through eight hours of work, even though I'm not like. I don't have like a super physical job, but by the time it's, by the time the day's over, I don't have the same, like just mental energy to sit down and, um, and work on something. So yeah, I do it first. Um, I do some reading in the morning. I try to spend at least an hour, hour and a half working on, um, my project. And then I usually have to arrive to work like half an hour early now. Cause I'll walk in and then whatever, whatever idea I was like churning over, in the writing time will keep churning while I'm walking into work and then I have to get there early. So whatever I was thinking about, I can like get down on the page before I have to like clock in. But yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. The, how do you keep it separate? Uh, and making sure that when you, you know, after you've had that 30 minutes to kind of uh, wind down that writer brain, uh, how do yeah. you make sure that one doesn't bleed into the other? Um, what do you mean? Like, like, I well to give you an example. So even yeah, with yeah, yeah. Uh, my various day jobs over the years, sometimes it, I'm constantly thinking of uh, either the writing or the podcast or anything. Even like yeah. on the clock for that thing, I'm always kind of like, you know, okay, sneaking not sneaking away, but kind of a lack of a better term, like sneaking away to like you know promote some episodes, like get some tweets out, do some of that promotion. So there's right. always like. One thing is always kind of tra- trespassing on the other, so there's like never one hundred percent focus on anything. It's kind of <laughs> yeah. It's a, right. it, so some I have a hard time delineating, just uh, just because I don't know. It's, it could be it's just a deficiency deficiency in my out of box software. <laughs> uh, but I wonder like how you, how you successfully like cleave off one from the other. That way, you know, morning is writing time, and then oh, it's all right, all right, clocking in, going to work, and then doing that part of my day. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, 
I don't think I'm that good at, at separating them either. I think one of the things that I'm trying to to be good at is like I'm trying not to like give like my my day job, like my work, like a smaller position. I don't want to just like think to myself like, well, this is the less important stuff. The thing that actually matters to me is writing. And this is the other stuff that I have to do to get paid. Like I want to bring as much of myself as I can to like the work that I'm doing. Like mostly because like in the the nonprofit work that I have, I do have an opportunity to learn a lot about my community and be kind of involved in my community. And I want to take that just as seriously and I want to give it just as much of a sincere effort as I would to my writing work, um, even though they're, they're separate kinds of things. When I first got back from uh, deployment, like my wife and I moved out to San Francisco and I took this office job and it was, it was just kind of boring and drab. And I had this, I had this attitude that like the thing that I'm doing in the morning between like 4am and seven, that's the important stuff. And that's who I really am. And then I go to work and that's just like what I do because I have to do it. And whatever my behavior is at this job, it doesn't really matter. And it was just kind of like, a, I just had this like position toward it where it does it wasn't really who I was. And I'm trying to be like better about um, like really like showing up like 100% of the time. And even if it's not like I'm not really bringing my writer skills necessarily to my office work, I'm still like trying to approach it in a way that um, I don't know that I find like fulfilling um, instead of just like kind of slumping it off because it's not it's it doesn't like correspond to that part of myself or like it's not like a literary position, you know, it's not like the literary community. So, yeah, because there's there's an element and I've struggle with this for years and years that like when there's a part of you that as a as a writer or journalist or whatever it is it's like you want to be known or that is the thing you want to hang your hat on like i'm sure yeah um, yeah yeah and so like when when you have to do this other thing over here sometimes it, and this i'm just speaking for myself like i just feel kind of like pathetic i feel like a loser <laughs> like i've i've lost like i'm not doing the thing that i kind of set out to do and here's this right. thing that's taking up a significant chunk of time that's not contributing to the thing i l would like to be known for and then it, it right. just kind of festers and it sounds like you you know you're you're developing a good approach to that where you know they can be, you can have the one thing and then the other thing, and it doesn't mean you're any less of an artist because you have to go over here for a few hours every day. Yeah. It, it, one of the things that I've noticed about it is that, like, I think, like, it's it's like a, a, a non-literary eight hours of my day in a way, but I'm also just really interested in, like, the ways that, like, the stuff that I'm doing is, well, like, would be seen through, like, a literary lens like i'm always around people like now and they're always talking about like community and this like strengthening community and it's this very kind of like um sort of dry like nonprofit language um but like what they're talking about is like place like if it was a writer showing up to that conversation the word that you would use is like place what we're thinking about is having a sense of like belonging to place but like the nonprofit folks always call it like community and it's just like a slightly different language to describe like the geography of like belonging, but because it's not like a literary space, there's just like a different vocabulary for it, but it's not like a, it's not like a lesser version of the conversation. It's just happening among different people. And it's, I mean, it's still the same things that show up in essays. It's still the same things that show up in um, literary work. It's just that the conversation happens in this parallel way that um, we're not always paying attention to. Yeah, and I, I like having these kind of conversations around um yeah, around day jobs that don't necessarily tether directly to the the art that we want to make. Uh, I think there's this it, just look at your bookshelf. It just all those yeah. authors there, it feels like that's all they do and my goodness, wouldn't that be great if that was all I did. <laughs> And and so to know that so many people like you know you're you're awesome like this memoir is amazing I loved it and it won a prestigious award at AWP and you wrote this you know as part a big big chunk of it as part of your MFA and it's also it but it's not like your one hundred percent gig you know you were able to do a lot right. of this writing with a lot of other things going on and so it's like people can accomplish you know really a great art that can connect people 
while while doing the other things to 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 survive well i can tell you like so i graduated in 2016 i had a thesis version of the book and i had a lot more work to do um and one of the pieces that i wanted to write um it's the last chapter of the book and it's about an interpreter that i worked with overseas and writing that essay required me to um, interview him several times and he is he still lives in Afghanistan and so for for me to do that um, and for the the time to be convenient for him I'd wake up like at like 3 30 in the morning and try to be prepped for an interview at like four and I'd talk to him over uh, like Facebook chat for um, like an hour an hour and a half and then I would um, transcribe for an hour or so, try to make notes about what I learned from that conversation. Um, I would do some like research based on what he had told me. Um, if I needed to do like some additional like background interviews, I would try to find people who I could talk to. And then I would be doing like writing work up till like you know six thirty seven, and then I had to be in the office at eight. At that time, I had an eight to two job. Um, which is also just like a really privileged thing to be working less than a 40 hour gig. But then I would work eight to two and then I'd come back and I would do um, editing on the essay from like two 30 to like four 30. It was just really weird. Cause I'd, I'd show up to the office um, in the morning and uh, I, I just felt like I'd lived about two and a half days already by, by that time. <laughs> and like, nobody else knows that like you, it's not an, you can't use it as an excuse. Like I woke up like six hours ago. I'm super tired. You can't like use it as like um, a reason to not engage with whatever you've got on your plate for that day. It was, it was really, I mean, it was really happening around, um, around my office work and that's just how it went. And it, it took, you know, it took us a longer amount of time than it would have if I was in the MFA program, but it came together still. With this book, I love the, you know, the your writing style in this book. It's just, it's, there's kind of a leanness, sort of a Gen X kind of almost uh, not a, like a detachment to it in a lot of ways. I just love the wit to your language. It's really lean, a lot of short sentences. And how, how did you approach this just from a technical writing point of view? Like how did that voice surface for how you wanted to tell, tell your stories in these, in, in this book? Well, I started one of the first pieces I wrote, it's called, uh, it's called Rhino Snot in the, in the book. And it's kind of a collage piece. And I started writing just like a lot of really brief kind of vignettes and anecdotes. And I was kind of interested in figuring out like what the contours of a memory would be. Like there were, there's a lot of these moments where there's like a specific kind of moment of language, or there's just something like a detail that I remember. And I wanted to figure out like, what's the smallest amount of information that I can give somebody where that vignette has the same kind of effect or force that it does to me that it has like the same amount of like kind of narrative weight, even if it's just by itself. And I wanted to figure out like, what's, what's the like most succinct version of that, of that kind of detail or the most succinct version of how I like kind of experienced something that somebody said that stuck with me. And then once I had, um, that kind of anecdote, then trying to figure out how to arrange them in a way that, uh, that formed some kind of story. And so it started out as like really like a project about like trying to, trying to be uh, succinct and trying to be um, brief, but like kind of stringing together these things that I'm, I know that they're important to me, but it takes me some effort to figure out like why. And it takes some effort to figure out how I can make them important for other people. But that was like kind of the, the inciting kind of thing where I, I got really uh, jazzed about trying to write out these scenes in a way that I could kind of convey their importance or try to explore their importance. Um, and that's kind of where it started. I think that was, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but that's kind of the, the how I started getting into the, the prose style, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. Because it, it, you get across a lot of information in a real tight package. And, uh, and uh, of course, a lot of these uh, these little vignettes or these tiny set pieces, they uh, a lot of them were were essays that were on their own, and then of course you, you're able to like stitch them together because this reads very cohesively, certainly to me. And uh, what was that challenge for you to take 
you know, parts that stood by them stood on their own and then stitched them together in a way that felt, you know, rather seamless. I think, I think that's one of the really good reasons for having like a, an ongoing, like reliable set of like readers, like whether it's in an MFA program or otherwise, like having people who are familiar with the last thing you did, but also having to start anew every single time. Like if you're going to take it out and make it stand on its own, um, you can't assume anybody has read it before. But if your readers have read it before, you have to do both at the same time. You have to like keep them engaged and not just and not just like give them a paragraph they've already seen. Um, but you also have to um, you have to look for those like new readers who have never seen any of your work before, and you have to kind of approach it for the first time. Um, like one of the pieces in the book, the way that I did that um, is I, I had like a new set of readers like in a class that I was writing for, and I wasn't sure how to place them in space and time. Like I was going to be in the the um, Bad Peck Valley of Logman Province in 2011. Like how do I get this new batch of readers to understand what it was like to put this in context? And so I just started writing other um writing about like other popular stories that they might have heard about and and i'm trying to put those in perspective like this story you might have heard about took place five years ago 50 miles to the north and this story that you might have heard about took place 20 miles to the east um you know three years ago and this book that was written about afghanistan took place um you know 100 miles to the south and those events took place and it was just like one like trying to attempt to um, get a new audience situated while trying to think about like, if I bring this in to the fuller story, it has to be a method of doing that, that I haven't already um, done in a previous chapter. It has to be a new attempt at kind of setting the stage. And I think that's a really useful thing to do to keep, like keep your reader on their toes a little bit and keep them engaged and thinking of like thinking about each piece from a new place, because if you're going to take them out and try to sell each one individually, like that's going to be like, it's just a logistical like necessity. Mm. And what were you reading at the time that helped inform the, the process of you writing this book? I remember I was a really, really, um, engaging with Sarah Mangusso's books around this time. Like I had, I had just read Ongoingness, and I had just read um, The Two Kinds of Decay, um, which is like her memoir about like a, an illness. And I was really interested in, in The Two Kinds of Decay, especially because it was there's a lot of like specialized language, and it's a very specific experience that I have no like no connection to. And she has to like teach you a lot of like technical medical procedures and she has to teach it to you in a way that like helps you be there and helps you understand it without it just feeling like explanation like here's the the dry paragraph you're just going to need to know this for something else later like the explanation itself has to like get you there it has to like help you understand it like she's got these paragraphs where she's trying to explain what it's like to have these like the specific kind of like blood transfusion and explain what that that feels like to go through and also like give you the the technical information. And I really appreciated seeing a writer kind of attempt, like move through a very specific experience, one that it's very likely none of her readers have ever been through before. And not just like coach them through it and lecture them about it, but um, like, like get you to be part of the process and to, to let you be as thoughtful as she's being. Um, and like kind of think through what each of these things means, like alongside her, like that's such a difficult thing to do. And I think, um, she's really good at it. And I was, I was really like entranced by, uh, her nonfiction, like around that time. And as a, as a writer, what do you feel like you're, uh, that you struggle with and that things that you look, you feel like you need to, you know, overcome things you may maybe wish you were better at, you know, trying to like balance the musculature of your writing body, if you will. Oh God. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so many things. Um, I think one of the, one of the most like 
challenging and like sometimes frustrating parts of like essay writing is like when you learn how to write an essay, you basically just learn how to write that essay. And then you have to start over and you have to learn how to write the next essay by learning how to write like that next essay. And it's so hard to be responsive to the piece that you're on right now. Like I just feel like, well, I did this form one time. Maybe this form will work again. And it doesn't. You know, like, well, I did this form one time. Maybe I can just bring up this form to it and that'll work. And it really doesn't. Like you just like you want to take the stuff you've gotten good at and just like do it again. Uh that's just not that's just not how it is. Like like you have to be you have to be like really listening to what this new piece wants from you. And then you have to learn how to do that new thing. And I think that like it's such a time consuming skill that I I just I feel kind of resistant to it, but I know it's like the it's the right thing to do. It's like the the it'll end up being the most efficient way forward is if I just like to make a, a a genuine effort to like listen to this piece and figure out what it needs. But it's uh, it's so hard. <laughs> it as a as a writer too, what you know, given your you're a few years removed from your MFA program, and and you're uh, of course you know several thousand words removed. You know, you're of course progressing. Uh, what do you feel like you're you're better at now than you were, say, five years ago? Ooh, um, I don't know. I sh- <laughs> I would love to have a long list of things. Um, I think. <sighs> I think I'm a little bit better at um at like at doing the research and doing some of the legwork and being prepared for like like from an essayistic perspective like figuring out what the trajectory of the idea is and trying to follow along with it instead of just like well what's a scene from my life that I've already been through that I could put here that might get the idea a little further. Um, like trying to open the aperture a little bit and, and decide like, well, maybe, you know, if scene isn't the right thing, what's, what's the document that I need to chase down or like, what's the information I need to chase down? What's the the history I need to read? Um, who do I need to talk to? Uh, I think I'm a little bit more open to that than I used to be. And I think it's because I have, um, few, I have fewer deadlines to hit, so I can be a little bit more um, aggressive in um, in my research. And I think I'm getting better at that, and I think I'm enjoying it more. I think like I'm getting more interested in research where, like, once I've got one document, I want to have all the documents. I want to keep like finding out so much, and it can be a little bit counterproductive. But I think I'm getting better at that. At like trying to go after the information, what has already been said about it, what does the conversation already look like, and um, and then use that in a, in a creative way in the piece. I hope I'm better at that, at least. Yeah, that, that discovery and detective work is some of the most fun that I have, too. It's just a blast to go into those documents and see what document yeah. informed that document, and then see what people are writing about that, and then start curating it, and then letting your own taste and your own talents you know, take it from there. It's really, it's really invigorating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's one of those things, like one of the writers at uh, the book festival yesterday was talking about it, about like how, uh, who was it? I mentioned this being so excited by the research and then having to do the more like sober uh, editorial work of like deciding, like, do you really need to show this to anybody? Like, is it actually relevant to the thing you're doing? Um, I think it was maybe Peter Rock who mentioned it. Like I found this, this document, like, is it actually furthering the work that I claim that it's furthering or I'm just, am I just excited and I want to show it to people? I think that's the hard thing. Cause you just get so excited about the process and it's hard to do the, the like kind of analytical work of what's the most important thing and how do I show it and how do I present it and how do I make it uh, creative? With uh, research too, it can be really, really easy to let research be a way of being like a productive procrastinator. Uh, have you found a yeah. good balance of doing doing a lot enough research where you feel confident to write, but not in such a way that you're like, well, you know, I'll start writing if I can just find out a couple more things and and let that whole cycle perpetuate itself. Have you found a good balance? 
I think I've developed a uh, a barometer for when I've gone too far. I think I've I've learned like okay, this is this is one book more than I needed. I think like I think I've learned that what that feels like rather than instead of like saying this is maybe not the right book, I need to read three more. Maybe that's the problem. Um and just like thinking like no, okay, I've got what I need. I'm really out here on the the periphery. Um the most important stuff I've I've read it and I sh- I need to go forward with what I've got. Um I think I'm I think I'm developing that barometer, but um that's the hard thing because you can always keep going. You can always like you can always imagine someone else wrote the perfect thing. Someone else wrote the perfect passage that I could respond to. The perfect detail is out there and I just gotta keep chasing it. And in the course of you know submitting various work to various places, and then uh, I wonder like how do how have you dealt with the uh, the ubiquitous rejection that we all deal with? What's your approach around that? One of the things that I started doing is keeping a record of like positive feedback. Hmm. Um, so like I think I'm sure probably everybody does this, but like I keep like a spreadsheet of like what I sent, who I sent it to the date that I submitted it, when it comes back. Um, and then I, I just added a column for like, if I get a personal rejection, like what are the things that they liked about it? And I just add that in so that when I'm doing the sort of businessy work of sending stuff out, I can look back and say like, see that an editor at this place liked this thing. Even if the essay never made it anywhere, nobody took it, nobody like liked it enough to publish it. Here's two comments from an editor where they appreciated it and they just didn't have a spot for it. Um, but here are the like specific things that they mentioned that were going well. Um, and I've just tried to collect that information so that I'm not just thinking that like I'm sending it out into the ether. No one's really reading it or no one's, no one cares about what I'm saying. It doesn't matter. Um, and then it gets turned down and it's just depressing. Like, cause I think we all know better. I think we know that like there's a ton of, there are a ton of really amazing readers. There's a ton of amazing editors who are working really hard. They want to publish tons and tons of stuff. And it's just like not the right moment. It's not the right fit. Um, but it just that process is just never how it feels and it's never how it looks. So I try to like preserve as many artifacts of like the good stuff, like the goodness that I can and try to keep myself, um, keep eyes on it so that when I go back to try again, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like impossible. Mm. And kind of uh, piggybacking off of that, uh, certainly these days with with social media, sometimes it can feel like our our peers and people we admire are just like constantly crushing it all the time, and uh, <laughs> they're just winning, and yeah. then we're just like kind of stuck in like knee deep in the mud, and it's yeah. just like ah, you know, man, I just I want some piece of that, but really they're they're struggling too, uh, and it it can be. Even though we know that sometimes it can we can struggle with these feelings of competition and, and jealousy, and I wonder if, if that's ever something you've wrestled with. Like how, how have you how have you processed that? One of the ways that I think about it is like if you see somebody who's just like on a hot streak, you know, with like publishing. Usually, what that means is they did a ton of work a year ago, or like nine months ago, or right. eighteen months ago. And they were, they were like waist deep in the work at that time. And they were just like, they were pressuring themselves probably to get stuff done. They were creating a ton of essays Then they got to it and they sent stuff out and it all came together for them just by chance all at the same time, all the legwork they did way back in the past, it kind of coalesced in a moment where it looks like they're just on a hot streak right now. But really it's just like evidence of what they did. Um, a bunch of months ago, like I, I had, I don't know, I think it was like two or three essays come out at the same time or like at really similar times away, like a while back. And someone mentioned like, yeah, you're doing really great right now. And like, I wasn't doing anything at that time. Like I had done a ton of stuff, um, a year ago and all of those projects had just kind of hit publication dates at the same time. And all of the work was way back in the past. And I remember just mentioning like, yeah, I mean, like it's it's going well right now, but like the real question is going to be like how I'm doing nine months from this moment because like the work that I'm doing right now will be judged yes or no like from you know a while from now it's going to be down the road and that'll be like the moment where 
the work I'm doing now will be either um, successful or not. I try to keep that in mind. Like, even if I don't have anything that's coming out like right in this moment, like I can be doing the work. I can be like showing up and I can be doing the research and I can be like reading and making the effort so that um, I can try to be like setting myself up to be part of the conversation and be, be engaged um, in the future. Oh, that's awesome. I When I was at uh, Hippocamp a couple months ago, this great nonfiction conference uh, in Pennsylvania, highly recommend it if you ever get a chance to to go out to it. It's uh, it's great. It's just totally creative nonfiction. It's a small, intimate conference. It's uh, awesome stuff. And uh, I was listening to one of the speakers, and she was citing um, – I think it was Lisa Romeo who's uh, been on the, been on the show a while ago and um I think it was Amy Fish who was quoting Lisa and uh she said something to the effect of like in you know for an upcoming year like you should aim for 100 rejections and I just I love that so much because there was like a fearlessness and a courage just to submit it but the sh- but I, I have a feeling that people might submit like five times a year and then they right. wonder why they don't land any it's like how right. are you going to get any bullseyes if you only throw three darts? Like you got to right. throw a thousand darts to hit maybe two bullseyes. So I, I love that of aiming for the rejections. It, it's a fearlessness. And guess what? I guarantee you, yeah. you'll have a career year if you submit a hundred times. Yeah, aim for a hundred rejections. Yeah, I think I think like you can get too specific with like you're like too targeted. Like oh, here's a magazine that has my exact aesthetic yeah. and my exact like. They publish the exact word counts that I'm working on right now, and this is the perfect home for the thing that I'm doing. And you've just analyzed it to death, and you're like, this is exactly where it's going to be. And you've got like three of those. Like, I just need to send it to one of these three places because it would be perfect for one of these three places. Um, But a lot of the things that I've sent, I'm a little bit surprised. Like, I thought it was like a, it was a long shot. Like, it seemed unlikely that the place might want it, but they might want it. And it seemed like kind of one of the more long shot opportunities and those things come through sometimes. And I think it's worth it. I think you've got to find a balance where you're being careful and respectful of the magazine's time. And you're trying to get something that's kind of in their wheelhouse, but you can't be too presumptuous to know about like everything they could or couldn't want to at the same time. Yeah, of course. And it wouldn't be like throwing random darts at random places. Cause that, <laughs> right. yeah, but, yeah. but if you like, all right, this one, this one essay, I think this could potentially land at five different places. And then it's just like, yeah. you know, go, going from there, of course. Um, uh, as we wind down here, Stephen, um, what what is, you know, exciting you and bringing you to the page, uh, you know, every morning for those two hours before before work? You know, what is what's the juice in the tank right now that you're excited about to uh, to to bring to your work. Yeah, I do. I do have a project I'm working on. Um, and I think the thing about it that is most like most compelling to me is that it always feels like I'm a, I'm a little bit lost, but in like an exciting way, like that there's this, that there are like things I don't understand, but I'm almost there. Like I'm really close. And I think like there's, it's, there's like a balance between, um, being kind of confused by a moment or confused by a text or like kind of frustrated by two things that don't quite make sense and then just pushing on it and pushing through it and uh, trying to like either resolve them or figure out how they can kind of be in balance with each other. And those like those moments I think are really compelling because it's just like you're always like almost there and uh, it just takes like a little bit work, a little bit more work and uh then sometimes it, it comes through and it's really rewarding. It's so exciting to like, to learn that other people are also out there. Like it's, it's a solitary thing, but like you start talking to people and like, yeah, I have to, sh- I have to show up to this. This is my like passionate thing that I'm working on, on the side. This is like what I've got going. These are the irons I've got in the fire. I love learning what everybody's got kind of like, like moving, like the thing that they're trying to um, move forward. I, I love learning about that kind of stuff. Nice. Well, uh, being, of course, mindful of your time, Stephen, this was great. I hope this is the the first of many conversations we have. You know, we're practically neighbors here. <laughs> so I, I hope we're able to, to meet, uh, meet up again and, uh, and have, have more of these conversations, uh, recorded or unrecorded. So thank you so much for carving out the time, man. Yeah, I hope so, too. I really, really appreciate it. It was good talking to you. 
good times were had by all because I said so. Thanks for listening. This show, as you know, was produced, edited, conducted, soup to nuts by your buddy Brendan. Hey, hey. Head over to brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. For show notes and to sign up for that monthly reading list newsletter once a month. No spam. Can't beat it. You know, I hate it when hosts say thanks for listening and then you know they don't mean it. They're just like, hey, thanks for listening. It's like, mm, you can tell they don't mean it. I mean it, man. Yeah, you. Thank you for listening. The show is for you. I hope I've made something worth sharing. So please consider linking up to the show across your various platforms. You are the social network, man. Subscribing is the best way to keep it chill. You know something. I feel like it's just us in that car in Wayne's world. There's like five of us, and we're headbanging to Queen. That's how I see this. Tag the show on Twitter and Instagram, at CNFPod, and I'll jump in the fire with you. Devil horns, skulls, and fists. Might even get the Hetfield gif. You know who you are. I think, are we done? I think we're done. Yeah, let's get out of here, because you know if you can do interviews. See ya!